Fate would like to thank Canson Papers for sponsoring this episode of Positive Space. A longtime supporter of Fate, Canson has been manufacturing fine art papers since 1557. Canson has many styles and types of papers available for all your art-making needs. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Hello, I'm Valerie Powell, and welcome to our very first episode of this FATE podcast. Most listeners are very familiar with our guest. She is an author of a phenomenal Foundations textbook series, Launching the Imagination, and is one of the co-founders of Integrative Teaching International. She is currently a professor of art at Florida State University. We are thrilled to welcome Mary Stewart. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, Mary, was, um, you know, considering contemporary art and there are so many definitions of foundations and foundations of education, uh, how do you define foundations? I think a lot about foundations on the basis of what it seems to me that students really need. As I mentioned before, I'm very interested in that uh, rather unfortunate term, backward design. Even though it sounds a bit antiquated, it actually means something rather important. What do the students have when they get out of that program? What are, are the end results? And in those terms, it seems to me that foundations should provide students with the technical, perceptual, conceptual, and critical thinking skills on which further knowledge can be built. Foundations is not an end in itself. It is a means to build more things. Transferable knowledge is crucial. Now, there's a whole bunch of different curricular structures that different departments have developed, and there's some things that tend to recur. We can be quite familiar with certain models, the 2D, 3D drawing, time-based thing, that sort of structure. But if I were developing a curriculum for Utopia University, (laughs) anything is possible, it would look something like this. Uh, One of the courses would be from ideation to composition. It would take 2D and time-based and kind of connect them together with creative inquiry. Another of the courses might be called construction and critique. It would build on a lot of the construction ideas that are important in 3D design, but it would also embrace more about critical thinking that has become so important as we keep evolving contemporary art. Rather than having a straightforward drawing course, I might consider having a course called Perception and Notation. In such a course, drawing and photography might work together to help students understand ways of seeing and uh, conveying what they have seen. I think it's very important for students to have an introduction to contemporary art and design. At least in my experience, very few of them know very much about it. Many of them dislike it actively. 
we don't get to be artists in another time. We can only act in our own time. And so knowing something about the art of today, for better or for worse, seems to me really important. And so that's just a few ideas I have also about coursework that might be useful to consider as we develop further programs. Can you tell us a little bit about your background with foundations and with the FATE organization? Sure. The way I worked myself into doing foundations was uh, a path that I think probably a lot of people follow to some extent. My degrees were in printmaking. I got an MFA in printmaking from Indiana University, and it was there that I encountered two extraordinary foundation teachers, especially. Mm -hmm. They are uh, William Itter, who was directing the foundations program, and David Horning, who is now, I think, in New York City. In any case, um, I started teaching foundations as a grad student and really loved it. Then when I started getting teaching positions, and I got kind of a string of uh, one semester or one year mm -hmm. uh, entry-level positions initially, I mostly was doing a mix of foundations and printmaking. When I got my first tenured position at Syracuse University, uh, it really emphasized foundations. So from that point onward, uh, which was 1985, I really focused on foundations. And uh, regarding fate, I think I first heard about it in 1983. Um, a colleague told me about this earnest and somewhat obscure at that <laughs> organization, and um, so I attended my first FATE conference in 1986. I'm pretty sure that's where Jeff Beauchart and I met. I think it was mm. his conference as well. Uh, at that time, FATE conferences typically had under 50 participants. Wow. Yeah, we could all have dinner together in an ordinary restaurant without too much difficulty. <laughs> Um, and um, I think I've gone to every single one since then, except uh, one when I was teaching in London. I think that was 1991. Wow, incredible. I love all that history. That's, that's really, really amazing. And, and how, how did you get into teaching? What, what excites you about being, being a professor and, and teaching in general? Well, oddly enough, I actually got into, realized how much passion I had for teaching as working as a tour guide at Yellowstone National Park. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. Yeah, I, this was one of my many summer jobs, and um, so I usually was with the same group on a bus for three days at a time, and taking them all around the park and talking about what bears eat and the gestation <laughs> period of elk and all this other stuff, and I actually had virtually no social skills coming out of high school, like none. Um, and so um, working as a tour guide, I, I realized how much I, I loved the engagement with people and uh, showing them things that were fascinating. And I actually went to grad school very explicitly with the intention of not only strengthening my studio practice, but also gaining teaching uh, uh, opportunities. 
Oh, wow. That's, that's such a, a curious way to sort of find out that you want to become a professor. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. Sure. Yeah, I um, I kind of want to hear a little bit about what you're working on now. I, I know that, that you've been and, and are passionate about teaching foundations. And in terms of, of teaching creativity and, and teaching students how to find out what they're good at and, and learn how to sort of tap into to being inspired and, and making things, uh, what are some, some tips that you have for people to do that well oh goodness well let me just talk a little bit about a course that I'm uh, have taught three times now and continue to develop is called creative inquiry this is a new type of liberal arts course that has been developed at Florida State University and it has the curious structure of having ideally senior faculty members with great disciplinary uh, strength teaching usually sophomore level classes to non-majors so it's designed for these people with heavy disciplinary uh, expertise to be teaching people who are not in their discipline and mm-hmm. so that is how creative inquiry came to be because as I was puzzling over all the different disciplines we might consider and what I might have to offer to these uh, non-art majors, my conclusion was the most valuable thing I could offer would, in fact, be creativity. Mm. And uh, especially a lot of them are STEM majors, you know, physics, math. Right. Uh, uh, the one engineer who ever showed up in the class bolted after the first day. <laughs> I had him doing. I had him doing basic design, you know, very introductory work at the very beginning, and and it just wasn't the right thing for him. Mm. But that has proved to be a very interesting course. It's really expanded my interest in creativity and my conviction that STEM without steam goes nowhere. Mm. That impoverishes us all. If you have the STEM coursework and people build all these remarkable strengths but don't have the creativity to really drive the engine forward, what's the point? And likewise, artists often have big ideas but have neither the skills nor the budget to make them come to pass. And so aligning STEM with art and creating steam, it sounds a bit glib, you know, the, those acronyms seem more than a little glib, actually. But the, the things that I'm finding with my students is they're desperately hungry to have the opportunity for blue sky thinking. Wow. Well, and, and so after teaching art majors for, for a while and then going to, you know, this, this course that you're talking about, which is non-majors, how have you had to adapt your style or, um, you know, your introduction to creativity to those students? Well, one thing uh, that I think is very critical with any kind of curriculum design sounds rather unfortunate, but it is descriptive, and that is backward design. Mm-hmm. You start with what you want them to leave with. You don't, you start with the end in mind. What do the students most need from this course? 
So, of course, when you're working with majors, they need technical skills, they need more historical background than non-majors, and you have to design the courses appropriately for that. Non-majors tend to need encouragement, opportunity to heighten their observation, a lot of room to play. They're just desperate to have more oxygen in the room. And so one of the things that I found very important very early on was not to grade their art projects. I simply don't grade them at all, except for one photography assignment. Oh, but really? Wow. I don't grade them. I don't grade their art projects. Um, we do them, we call them exercises, and we do mm-hmm. them in class mostly. And there are other, uh, there are readings and there are papers they are writing. Uh, this particular course has to fulfill a writing component as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't have to grade most of their art experiences. And by taking that pressure off of them and me, we can really just engage in ideation and development of, of possibilities. And they just flourish. What they've come up with has been remarkably uh, interesting. And, but they, they have to be really, really encouraged because men are very tentative about doing anything the least bit studio-based. Wow. Well, and I, I would imagine that, you know, when it comes to science or math majors, that they're pretty used to having one right way to do something. You know, there's, there's sort of a correct answer. And how, how do you navigate that, you know, in, in the classroom in terms of getting them to not be afraid to fail or to, to really engage in play? You're very insightful. That's one of the most difficult things for them and for me. You realize how different our cultures are. Mm. In art and design, we consider it normal to flounder a great deal. (laughs) You make a lot of mess, and Mm -hmm. it's just normal. You don't even consider the possibility that you're going to get that there, number one, is a right answer, and number two, that you will find it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure totally unrealistic um, intentions. So the first thing that these students, especially that are in very rigorous uh, and usually kind of foundational STEM coursework, I hear a lot from them about organic chemistry, for example, (laughs) how rigorous it is. The very thought that there isn't a single right answer kind of blows their circuits and the open-endedness of the kinds of uh, assignments that I give to them and the more Socratic teaching style is really an adjustment. A few of them are, remain somewhat unnerved by this. Mm. Most of them, over time, they realize what's going on. And I'm so fascinated by their disciplines and by what they're creating It creates an extremely positive vibe in the room, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's it's this sense of a learning community. And I think in general, I got a little bit too loosey-goosey the uh, last time I taught it on campus, which was um, uh, last spring. Uh, So there's some things I want to clarify a bit more. But Mm. one thing that the powers that be wanted built into this new type of course initially they wanted these excruciatingly detailed rubrics 
And oh. I realized very quickly that would just be the kiss of death, that, that these students needed to have either very uh, lightweight rubric structures. Don't even talk about a rubric at all, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because especially in Florida, we not only have no child left behind, we also have another layer of that that is the Florida version of no child left behind, essentially. Mm -hmm. And they have really been tested within an inch of their lives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, yeah, it just has been deadly. And so uh, in general, I think the course has been really, really uh, eye-opening for them. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, observation, abstraction, forming patterns, recognizing patterns, analogies, empathizing. There's all sorts of things that really come in when you broadly define creativity. Well, definitely. And do, do you find that, that you have critiques or a time where you guys talk about things that are made creatively or talk about brainstorming or things like that in, in the class? Or is that something that you do with them like one-on-one? -on -one? Oh, I try to build, what I've done so far is met with a class one day a week for about three and a half hours, one day a week. So we would have enough time to really do some studio stuff. And when we first start off, as I say, it really is kind of a culture shock for many of them. Some, right. uh, you know, they're going into pre-med or things of this kind, and they always loved art, but it's not on their agenda at this time. But this is their opportunity to return to something they really like. But many of them, this really is culture shock. It's like, we aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a different world, a different mindset. And so initially we do, the only critique I offer is either observational, so I describe what I see, mm -hmm. or positive. I only describe what is working well. I don't, I don't even point out the things that aren't working. I only point out the things that are working. They're smart kids, you know, and they, sure. they want to do well. So if you point out all the things that do work well, you gradually shift the needle in that direction. And by the end of the course, they are critiquing each other's work vigorously, insightfully, generously. This last spring, I added uh, a new assignment to the course. Oh. Um, it's a poster design project wherein they research a hero of creativity within their discipline and, and they make a poster about this person. And with that, they are so fired up about the opportunity to do some um, very low-tech but pretty substantial um, possibility graphic design. They love it, love it, love it. <laughs> they want posters to look good they really are hungry for critique at that time but it takes the whole course for them to get to that point where they realize that they need the input from from various audiences to improve their work wow well and, and what a smart way to sort of tie in you know their understanding of, of their own field by highlighting you know creative heroes within their, their own areas 
Yes, and really the um, uh, this came out of a couple of ideas in a way. The very first time I taught this class, several of the students said point blank. They were stunned that we were talking all the time about their discipline and not about mine. It's like, you know, it's real about <laughs> me. Um, really? But one of them said point blank, there's no creativity in my discipline. Mm. A couple of them said that. Uh, Pre-med and retailing. There's no creativity in my discipline. And oh, wow. a, a biologist, three people said that. And it was like, uh, I'm <laughs> creativity in your discipline. You just haven't seen it yet. Right. And all of those folks really took off with this particular assignment. And it was so inspiring to them to realize that creativity was part of everything and that the assignments that we had been doing in the class could be seen as analogies to types of pattern formation that they might do in physics or mm. recognition they might do in biology. I had a wonderful biology professor come in and who was an expert in DNA, and so she talked about pattern recognition and formation in DNA, you know? So right. begin to realize the connections among these different things that are powerful, resonant, uh, and can be visualized. Wow. Well, and then, you know, th this class just seems so, I mean, I, I, I wish I could take this class from you, but, um, but I'm, I'm curious, how do you go about sort of assessing their level of creativity? I mean, is that kind of what's happening in the course, or are you kind of giving them feedback based on their progress? That, of course, is the big challenge. Yeah. Is, you know, assessment is not only a, a, an important reality, Sure. But it is a politician's obsession, in a way. <laughs> these days. You know this, you hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I fear that we think that something is good because it can be clearly assessed. Mm. Um, and that is not necessarily true at all. In fact, there's a wonderful quote from Einstein on that very subject having to do with everything that is, can be quantified isn't of value. You know, just, right. just because you can count how many toothpicks are in the toothpick box, it doesn't mean it's a worthwhile thing to spend your time on. <laughs> sure. No, that's, that's very true. But so that's, that's it is challenging. Yeah. It's definitely very elusive. I mostly focus on their writing assignments because mm. these are more, more within their realm of knowledge, their existing knowledge base. Uh, writing is a significant component of the course anyway. It actually, this course has to fulfill a writing uh, criteria for their overall undergraduate experience. But honestly, I grade rather generously in this class. As long as they're working their tails off and uh, really exploring and taking risks and really engaging with the writing and strengthening that, I meet with them one-to-one -one and, you know, do a lot of, of work with them that way. I'm sure that some people would like to see more clear uh, checklists, I mean, <laughs> certainly clearer checklists and so on. 
and I'll do what I can, but everything of value can't be counted. There are some things that are valuable that are more elusive than that, it seems to me. Sure. Well, and so it sounds like maybe that the course is more process-driven and exploratory than, than perhaps like product-driven. Would, would you agree? Yes, and I think it has to be. There's no way I can really do a whole lot with the product that a uh, very sophisticated physicist, uh, physics student is doing. There's no way I can do that, you know. I can't mm-hmm. in any kind of depth about uh, college-level mathematics. I, I just can't do it. And so it naturally has to be something that invites uh, a different way of being, uh, both as a teacher and as a student. And thus far, they have risen to the challenge and really appreciated the opportunity to explore and expand uh, creativity within themselves. Hmm. Well, and can you talk a little bit about the writing assignments? What what kind of prompts do you give, or have you found certain ones more successful than, than others? Yes, two particular answers to that question. The first is, as a result of a presentation I did for the Atlanta Public School System a number of years ago, I came across a recommendation of a book to read, which is, has a rather unfortunate title, but is a rather good book. <laughs> that book is Sparks of Genius, The 13 Thinking Strategies of the World's Most Creative People. As I say, it sounds like an excruciatingly goofy <laughs> book. In fact, it's actually pretty interesting. Some of the stuff that the authors say about art is a bit specious, but they do frame things up in a way that has provided a good backbone for this course. And as I say, the uh, chapters deal with things like observation, analogies, abstraction, and so forth. They deal with with very big picture things that can be turned into assignments that are appropriate for this course. So one thing that I have the students do is I have them Uh, read these various chapters and post commentaries on Blackboard. And I make those available to all people in the class. In fact, I make all my assignments available to all students in all my classes now via Blackboard. Of course, when I grade things, my own comments are confidential to them. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, they can see each other's work. I want them to learn from each other's work. So that works out very well. The assignment, the very first assignment of much, well, the very first assignment is a a biography. I want to know something about their background and what they want to get from the course because I want to really frame the course so it's student-centered from the get-go. And beyond that, the very first assignment of any uh, word count is called 10 Attentive Minutes. And in this assignment, they have to spend at least 10 minutes. I suggest they spend about half of that just observing and half of it taking notes on what they had had just observed, jotting down a rough commentary on that. But just sit still. Do not pull out your phone. (laughs) And just pay attention. And I had no idea if they could even do it. Oh, wow. 
And yet, what has happened in all three times that I've taught this course, consistently, the students say that single assignment was the biggest revelation to them. Wow. Now, I, I wonder if, if that's because it made them uncomfortable or it was unfamiliar to them. What are your thoughts on, on why that was so groundbreaking for them? I think it was because it was unfamiliar and it was a revelation. They didn't realize there was that much to look at in the world. Mm. They, they just hadn't pulled their nose up from the keyboard long enough. And they really get into writing about what they have observed. They, they, you know, they, they consistently have gone way beyond what I anticipated. They are so desperate to engage with the world once they get started, once they're told they have to do that. We initially do what I call an attention walk, and I just take them on a little prowl around a, a brief, about 15 minutes, just walking through uh, various sections of campus, and then returning to the classroom and just say, okay, you have to only observe. You don't get to talk. Just observe. And then we discuss how many things can be observed. So that acts as a springboard. But uh, nonetheless, it's, it's been a, a really remarkable to me how uh, responsive they have been to such a simple assignment. Wow, ab absolutely. It sounds like that would be something that, that would really sort of start off the semester in a way that would, you know, frame them to, to move forward and, and really start looking and, and really seeing the world. Yes. Well, you said you, you taught this course a couple times. Is that right? I've taught it twice on campus, and I taught it in London this summer. Oh, wow. And so are, are you, are there ways you're thinking about changing it or updating it? Or are there things that you're excited to sort of test out in the coming semester? There is a book that I'm reading right now that I'm definitely going to require in the course. That book is called A More Beautiful Question, and it is by Warren Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R. -E mm. And it's talking about how important it is to frame up questions effectively and how questions that we have been so blindsided by our mania for quantifiable answers that we have lost sight of the power of questions. And um, so we're definitely, it's a, a very good book, and um, it's definitely going to get built in, into the course next time I teach it. And the ideas from that book will also inform all of my courses that I'm teaching at this point. I'm teaching a, a course in, in uh, contemporary art, in the fall, and I've already rewritten that course quite a bit. And I'm teaching 2D design, which I first taught in 1979. And there were some semesters at Syracuse University where I was teaching three sections of 2D design a semester. Mm -hmm. I've really taught this course over 200 times. Wow. And I think it's time I might actually have something thoughtful to bring to the course this time. I'm going to frame it up in terms of a more beautiful question.
Wow, that's 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 really exciting that that can be sort of a springboard, you know, when you're teaching non-majors, that that can inform, um, you know, across the board of what what you're teaching. Yes, that's really exciting, and I'm you know I'm I'm curious how do you how do you know this might be sort of a silly question, but how do you know when to update a class or when to kind of change the curriculum? Is something you find yourself doing? you know, a lot, or is it, you know, based on a book you read or something you, you hear and it kind of sparks an interest? How, how do you go about navigating that? That's a very good question because one does tend to get better, so to speak, as a teacher with experience. In my, mm-hmm. in my experience, you usually, it takes at least three times through for you to really get good at teaching a new course. Mm-hmm. And so throwing out your experience that you have gained from those previous efforts and simply starting completely from scratch every time um, not only would be rather exhausting, but also I think would be counterproductive because, as I say, you have thrown out something that's really valuable. On the other hand, teaching the same way over and over again, there's two hazards I can see right away, probably there's some more we could think up, <laughs> one of those is boredom. Mm-hmm. If you're teaching at the same assignments over and over again, it's a rare assignment, it seems to me, where you can keep it fresh enough and be surprised. Mm-hmm. And if you can't be surprised, it may be the very first time that student has ever realized that putting the black square in the lower left corner changes the balance in the design. But you are not surprised. You know this already. Uh How can you share the student's enthusiasm if it becomes passe? I don't see how this is possible. So I think a degree of constant revitalization is valuable, especially it is important to change the course when it it just doesn't seem like the students are on board with it. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough challenge. You know, I find that all the time with my contemporary art course. I had the students write self-reflections at the end of the course this time, and it was um, very revealing how many of them, especially walked into the course, completely detesting contemporary art, absolutely hating it. Mm. many of them walk out and not loving it but at least they understand (laughs) what it is you know they understand a lot about who's doing what and why they're doing those things so how do you engage students with a required course in a subject they absolutely abhor and make it valid make it so there is a fresh sense of inquiry that really connects to them, that's the constant challenge, I believe. No, absolutely. And I, I love what you said about, you know, being being passionate and sharing that enthusiasm because if we're not willing to get fired up about something, then how can we expect our students, you know, to, to get excited about something if, if we're sort of bored with it? Definitely. I, you know, I'm, I'm in, interested in, you know, how, how you're talking about, creativity and, and how that ties into to being creative within the classroom and being creative in curriculum development. And, you know, do you find that 
creativity is something that that you have to you know work on yourself um is that something that you struggle with is that something because it sounds like you're very excited about the whole process and you're really passionate about it um and so i'm i'm curious how do you tie that into teaching in terms of staying passionate all the time um because that definitely seems like something you've done really well is, is stay excited and stay curious well one hopes so you know, some days better than others, frankly. <laughs> right. 40 years of it, one some days better than others, or almost 40 years of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is where an inquiry-based teaching and learning process can be very valuable. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your introduction that I co-founded Integrative Teaching International. The other uh, co-founders were designer Adam Kalish, art educator, Richard Sigismund, and a social practice artist uh, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Jim Elniski. A very fortuitous team that I will uh, value uh, always in getting that uh, very visionary project started. And all three of them were way ahead of me on inquiry-based teaching and learning. At the time that they were working up a position paper, basically, for Integrative Teaching International. On this subject, I was pretty skeptical. I said, look, I don't want a student to inquire in the slightest about how to use a bandsaw. No inquiry. Just follow. <laughs> Just exactly what I show you, exactly what I say, and no inquiry. Well, of course, there are things of that kind. And it seems to me coy for me to um, sidestep some very straightforward information about perspective, for example. There's no point in having the students have to invent perspective on their own. As far as I can see, you know, just show it to them, teach them how to do it, and move on. It's not that thrilling. You know, (laughs) get on with it so you can use it to do something thrilling. It in itself, to me, is not the most exciting thing. But beyond that, to what extent... Can the teacher not know the answer? That's where that's the heart of an inquiry-based approach, I believe. The teacher knows the question or helps work with the student to frame questions, but it is not simply a game of charades wherein the student is supposed to come up with the answer on the basis of various clues that the teacher offers. This is not learning. This is regurgitation or charades or something else. But I think it's particularly poorly matched to today's students, even though many of them have played charades beautifully. That is how they got (laughs) into the university they got into. There's an interesting book I've heard of lately. It is titled Excellent Sheep. I haven't read it. I don't want to read it. It sounds a bit dismal. But it's about (laughs) that idea of them simply learning to be excellent sheep. That's not enough. It's really not enough. And so the idea of shifting that authority and making it more the guide by the side and less the sage on the stage is what I aspire to and continually work with. 
because I have the advantage of a lot of knowledge, both from reading and writing, and also experience in the classroom. And I could just get up and pontificate all day long. <laughs> but would this would what would really have the most resonating impact? I'm not convinced that listening to me pontificate is going to transform students' lives. I just am unconvinced. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, having the space in the classroom really engage students and really getting them to really buy into this idea that they have permission to fail, that they can ask questions and they, they should, and they have permission to do that and really engage in that process, I think opens all the doors, you know, and, and I think is, is so refreshing to hear and really, really exciting. You know, and I, I'm curious, you know, because you, you have all this experience, you know, you've written textbooks, you're, you're pretty awesome in all of that. And do you ever feel burnt out or do you ever deal with creative blocks or, or not feeling like you, you know how to solve a problem? Oh, yes, of course, of course. It's a complete um, fallacy to think that anybody has all the answers, some politicians would like to try to persuade you of this. <laughs> politicians are full of hot air also. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that constantly reassessing and kind of trying to, to refine and retool is really, really important. Avoiding burnout and staying passionate about education. Take a full year sabbatical whenever you can and continually <laughs> redesign your courses. Study a new language, go ziplining, go whitewater rafting, you know, do things <laughs> that put you in a risk position and an exhilaration position. Some of the best teaching I have ever done, I think, has occurred in the same semester when I am sitting in on a course myself. Very, mm. very helpful. Uh, then you can realize that especially things related to technology, I can learn them, but I'm very slow. Nothing is ever intuitive. When people say, oh, it's easy, it's intuitive, I feel like slapping them around, actually. <laughs> it never is. And if I am taking that kind of coursework and realizing that I am doing my level best and achieving mediocrity, then... It helps me remember that a student can be producing very uh, questionable results and yet be doing the very best they can. Now, as an art major, you can't simply be trying hard. You know, if the, if the, wor if the result is bad, you have to say the result is bad. You cannot pretend that just trying hard is enough. It's mm -hmm. not. But it's sure a start, you know. And one thing that uh, I had the good fortune of having some really pivotal students early in my career, I think it was maybe the second or third time I taught drawing. We're talking the 1970s here, late 70s. I had one student in particular, Dean. I remember him now. He was a poli-sci major, a very sweet young man, 
how he even got into this course, which was really designed as a foundational drawing course for majors, I don't know. <laughs> and he was so bad, you could not believe it. It was <laughs> trying to teach opera to somebody who is tone deaf. Mm. He was, uh, I would say, if one could be tone deaf, he was form blind. His understanding of volumes was so unlike anything you ever saw before, your, your jaw dropped. You just thought, how is it possible? And he, yet he was very earnest. He worked very hard. And I said, look, maybe you don't need to draw. Maybe you need to try ceramics. Maybe you need to try photography. Maybe you, art is not drawing. Drawing is a component of it, but it is not the whole show. Maybe you don't have to draw representationally. Maybe you do not have to do observational drawing. There are other paths. Nope. He wanted to do observational drawing. He wanted to learn how to do perspective, all of that stuff. And I thought, oh, good Lord. <laughs> uh, so I worked with him at the end of each class for about 15 or 20 minutes, one-to-one, -one, and would just go over things. Uh, I, I would go over them again. I would have him sit there and, well, first I would sit down and have him look over my shoulder and I would talk through every mark I was making and where did it come from. Then we would switch positions. He would sit there. I would practically be resting my chin on his shoulder so we would have the same uh, uh, eye level and point of view. And I would talk him through it and as he began to go awry, I would say you might want to check the angle of that line. And by the end of the course, he did one of the best final projects in the class, and it was of the interior of the campus power plant, which was an enormous coal-fired plant, very complicated. And they weren't, they weren't glib. His drawings were not slick. They were confident and considered and distinctly his own, and they were remarkable. And it was like everybody in the class could not believe it. How did you manage to do that? Well, he picked a drawing medium that was endlessly forgiving, a case of laying in vine charcoal and erasing the imagery out of that and then gradually building it toward more certainty from that point. But it was something that lent itself very readily to constant revision and he took about six hours for each of the six drawings he did for this assignment anyone else would have anticipated completing the drawing in about two hours hmm. so what he did he just gave himself way more room to fail and he just kept correcting and correcting and correcting and that convinced me that anybody can learn something if you just have patience and enough faith in them. Wow, I, I really appreciate hearing about that. that that's, that's really, really inspiring. It was a remarkable experience. I can't say I would invite the opportunity to have a lot of those experiences every <laughs> semester. It's rather, you know, it's rather draining, actually. And it really does rely on the student having endless patience and you having endless hope for them. 
but I mean, look at look at Van Gogh and Cezanne. Those early drawings from them were not exactly uh, accomplished and and confident. And yet, see what came from them. So, it's remarkable what what folks can do if they have enough time and enough support. Hmm. Well, and it's 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 impressive that you're able to recall this with with such clarity. Do you? write things down, you know, each semester? Do you sort of engage in self-reflection yourself as an instructor? Um, probably not as much as I should. The reason why I can recall that story so well was because it was so striking and because I've been teaching a course for grad students called Teaching College Art. I've taught this course for at least the past, um, gosh, 15 years roughly. And I tell that, that story every time I teach this course. It's a, crit, a critical story. It's very, very important for the students to realize that, you know, people who don't seem to be getting it may need one-to-one help, and maybe they can get it at that point. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm curious if you have any um, final thoughts for us or if there's anything that you, you know, want to share, whether it's about um, teaching creativity or anything. Well, I think I would give probably two comments. This would be more perhaps in the realm of advice for foundations coordinators here. I actually wrote down a few notes on this. Let me see. Oh, great. Yes. So you had sent me some questions earlier on about what is the role of a foundation coordinator. And it seems to me that um, this is sort of a checklist. Uh, You must advocate for beginning students and emerging educators. You must teach upper division faculty about the work being done in the first year. Oftentimes, if they have not taught foundations, they have no idea how much of a transformation is taking place. Usually, your budget is rather limited, so it has to be very uh, thoughtfully spent, maximizing as much as you can, organizing schedules carefully, obviously, mentoring faculty from all types of backgrounds, and with especially adjunct faculty, coming up with a personnel review process that is positive, not punitive. Very, very important, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems to me that a sense of humor is pretty important. And um, the last thing I'll say is uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got from Adrian Teo, who was the, um, I think he founded Fate in Review, actually, many years ago. Uh, His comment was this. Just do the best B-plus job you can do. When he said that, I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) One of the most excruciatingly methodical people uh, you can name, Adrian, a very knowledgeable, uh, dedicated person. Just do the best B-plus job you can do. I just couldn't believe it. (laughs) Uh, Then I realized what he was saying. Never stop seeking the best curriculum, the best pedagogy, the best hires, and so on. But realize you can't control everything. You cannot ensure an A-plus job every day. Don't drive yourself crazy. Don't drive your colleagues crazy. (laughs) That's the best job you can do. 
That is wonderful. That that is. I need to write that down and put that in my office so I can look at that every day because it it's it's really hard to to not just go a little crazy sometimes. Yeah, there's always more that needs to be done. You know, and you can apply this to your studio practice. You can apply it to your parenting. You can apply it to your administration. Whatever role you have. There are no cases that I know of where every day is just an unblemished jewel. <laughs> You're, it, it, hopefully, some of the days are, you know, when you just come out of the classroom or come out of a meeting just um, exhilarated because you know you really hit the target. But most cases are a mix of insight and clumsiness. They just are. And so... You know, realizing that you, you have that bandwidth, I think, is important. The other thing you had asked about self-reflection, and again, I had written a couple of notes about this earlier on. To quote a traditional song, all God's children got a place in the choir. Some sing low and some sing higher. <laughs> so it seems to me that art, education, administration, all of the demands we try to juggle are continually evolving. What works for one person could be a disaster for another. As you're developing your administration, find your path, gather a posse of friends who can help you along, and forge ahead doing the best B-plus job you can do. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's that's really, really great. Um, it has just been such a pleasure to talk to you, Mary. I, I really genuinely appreciate you being the, the pioneer on this very first podcast and just being willing to, to share your, your thoughts and your knowledge with us. Thank you so much. I think this is a very interesting means of communication, and I hope we are able to create something of value from this conversation and that others can contribute their own conversations. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversations on art foundations, visit the FATE website, foundationart.org. Don't forget the dash between the foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. Please join us next month for another visit to the Positive Space.